My name is Bill Acker. I probably have some title here. I'm not sure what it is. Other staff here at the church. And it's my privilege to get to preach here every so often. And I also are able to preach at other churches now and then as well. This morning, Josh asked if I would preach on the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, as we continue our study in the book of Luke. Now, before I read the passage, I want to just say a few things that will maybe make the passage seem a little bit more alive to you. As uh, some of you know, my wife and I like to go camping, and we have it as one of our goals to try to make a visit to every single national park in the United States. So we have a fair start on that, uh, but we have a long way to go. But about two years ago, we were at the, the, the Rocky Mountain National Park, and we were uh, there for about a week. And when we go to parks and go hiking, we, we always stay on main trails and go to see the different sites there are. But we always take a backpack with bottles of water and some granola bars and things like that. And uh, just in case we need water or need something to eat, we can do that. I uh, usually will have some kind of a map, a trail map with us as well. Uh, sometimes interesting things happen at uh, the Smoky Mountain National Park a couple years ago. Uh, one of our last days there, we decided we would take kind of an easy hike. And it was a big loop, went over a big hill and came back around and, and the exit was the same place where you entered the trail. So we're walking, we're looking at different things and we had been commenting about the animals that we had seen. Not too many animals actually, but we had seen a couple of bears and some deer and those kind of things. There were a lot of bushes around the trail. And as we were coming around the backside of the trail, starting back toward the, uh, the exit or the entrance, we heard some rustling in the in the bush beside us, so maybe that's maybe that's a squirrel rustling around, or maybe a rabbit or something like that. But when we get closer to the entrance, there's some lady there who's shouting at us, said, "Get out of there! Get out of there!" We said, "What?" Said, "There's a bear following you on the other side of those bushes." And we didn't even see the bear; we missed it. So we did get out of there, and uh, we didn't go back on that trail. At least uh, we haven't yet. You know that sometimes people go out into the wilderness and for whatever reason, they don't take water, they don't take anything to eat, they don't take a map or a compass, they don't take a cell phone, and they get lost. And sometimes they're found and sometimes they're found, but they're not alive. But when someone is lost, who's been hiking in some region, what happens? The authorities say, well, well, so what? You know, silly then to go out unprepared. No, there are major efforts mounted to find this individual. There's search parties that are organized. There are helicopters involved in some cases. Tracking dogs are brought in. And there's a search until the person's either found or their remains are located. And there's a great expense in doing that. So why does so much effort go into finding one person who gets lost out in the woods? 
It's because that person's life is valuable. Their life is valuable. And the authorities want to see that person found and hopefully found alive. My propositional statement or my main idea is our merciful God seeks those who are lost. Our merciful God seeks those who are lost. Our merciful God seeks those who are lost. Let me read chapter 15 of Luke. It's a long passage. There are three different parables. But I'm going to read the entire, entirety of the passage in one, one reading. Beginning with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there, will, there is joy in heaven before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a young man, or a man, who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And we had spent everything. A severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to go uh, to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the, his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that are the pigs that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, 
ran quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate now his older son was in the field as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come and your father has killed a fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you or I have slaved for you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. I know these parables are pretty familiar to you. Probably most of you could stand up and, and give a fair discourse about the meaning of the parables. But I do want to bring out a few things which I hope that you will ponder as, as you think about this sermon through the course of the week. One of the things that we need to remember when we look at a passage of Scripture is what is the context of that passage? What is the setting? What is the purpose of the passage which we are reading? And in this passage, the context is found just in the first couple of verses. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That was the accusation they had against Jesus. He receives sinners and he eats with them. Now, sometimes we've had people make accusations against us. And while they meant it as something which was detrimental, we took it as something which was really complimentary. Believe it or not, when I was in high school, I was accused of being too serious. Was that true? Yes. Yes, it was. And it was that seriousness on my part that caused me to reject a lot of the drinking and the stuff that went on with most of the students and kind of drove me to participation in, in the church. So what they meant is something that was sort of a, a, a slam against me, I actually thought was, was good. I liked it. So what did Jesus think when, when he heard this? What do you think he, you know, you eat with sinners and you receive these guys. And we know that these, these people you're receiving, they're just, they're just the scum of the earth. They're worthless. They're no good. 
They deserve nothing because they are bad. So Jesus is associating with bad people. And the bad people are listening to Jesus. Not only that, many of them are trusting Jesus for their salvation. When the Pharisees and the scribes are beside themselves because they're listening to Jesus and not to them. Their comment reflects their thinking. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, they follow the ideas of the day. They thought that salvation came by obeying the law, by offering prayers, by fasting, by making sacrifices, and telling other people how spiritual they were. In essence, they thought salvation came by their works. And these sinners and tax collectors didn't have any of those kind of works. Nothing going for them. They believed that you should not associate with an ungodly man. Oh yeah, God would, would welcome sinners, but he didn't go seeking them out. If they stumbled into a service, a synagogue service, that was okay, but uh, no way was God going to go out into the highways and byways and bring these people to himself. And they would believe that there was joy before God when those who provoked him perished from this world. And as you know, Jesus' attitude toward those who were lost was the very opposite of this kind of a mindset. We might say that those religious leaders had the same mindset of Jonah. We all remember Jonah. He was told to go to Nineveh, preach to that city to repent, or else the judgment of God was going to come down. And Jonah did not want to do that. He did not want God's grace to come on those people. Because in his eyes, those people were not worthy of salvation. Those people were the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel. And he wanted to see that judgment fall. But God said, go to Nineveh. So Jonah said, I'll run away. So he buys a ticket, gets on a boat, goes out to see a great storm. And uh, eventually it's determined that Jonah is really the cause of the storm. And Jonah said, just throw me overboard and it'll be over for you. They toss him overboard. Sure enough, the storm stops. A great fish swallows Jonah. Spits him out on dry land. What does God say? Hey, go to Nineveh <laughs> and preach to the people there. The judgment is coming. They need to repent. So he goes, and as we read in the passage of, of that book, he's not happy. He goes about the city preaching, and people are repenting left and right, and he is miserable. He goes out and sits on the hill watching it, hoping judgment will still fall, and God rebukes him for his uncaring attitude toward these people. 
And that's the same attitude that these Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law had. They had no concern for those who were lost. Their only concern was for themselves. So Jesus responds to this accusation. This man receives sinners and eats with them. He, he responds with three parables. Three parables. The first is a parable of the lost sheep. If a man has 99 sheep and one wanders off, he'll leave the 99 to go and search for the one. When he comes home, carrying his shoulders, he's excited. He calls his friends together. They rejoice with him because he's found that which was lost. And so here we see that God is like the, the seeking shepherd. God actually goes out and seeks those who have lost their way. God finds his sheep. The second parable is similar, the parable of the lost coin. A woman has 10 silver coins. She loses one, can't find it, and then she's beside herself looking for it. Tears the house apart. Now, those of you who know me know I cannot bear losing something. I can't just say, oh, it's gone, it'll surface later. I, everything stops till it's found. Just a couple of weeks ago, when our daughter and her family from the Detroit area were visiting, I was in the basement opening up some boxes and we were doing different things, cutting tape with my pocket knife. Then later that morning, I went over something else and the knife was not in my pocket. What happened to it? I always fold it up after use it and put it in my pocket, except that time I didn't. So I'm retracing my steps throughout the house. My daughter helps me. And if you saw my basement at the time, it's just littered with boxes and stuff all over the place. And she finds it. It's laying off to the side someplace. I had cut some tape and just laid it down. Now, this is not a really valuable knife. It's not like a bench-made knife or something like that. It's a Gerber knife. It's easy to come by. I could have replaced it, I suppose. But this was my... battery might be gone. It's red. Does it mean stop? back on? All right. Well, I was saying my knife wasn't a, a valuable knife or anything like that, but it was my knife. And I, I didn't like losing it. And so I searched till I found it. 
I said, what happened to her? I can't find her now. Is there my other pocket? I don't know. Everything's going to stop till I locate it. All right, here it is. So it's not a, this is not a good, it's just, just an everyday carry knife. It's good for cutting tape and things like that. It's not a bench-made knife. It's, it's uh, not even a buck knife. It's a Gerber knife. Okay. But I was so concerned over this knife that I stopped everything I was doing, and my family mounted a search until it was located. And so Jesus says, this lady who loses the one coin, she's going to search until she locates it because it's valuable. It's hers. She wants it. She's got nine other coins, so maybe she didn't actually need it, but she wants it. So she's going to tear the place apart until she finds it. And like the parable of the lost coin, God searches for those who are lost. Then we come to the third parable, which may be the more familiar, the one about the, uh, the prodigal son. So two sons. The younger says, give me my share of the property, and the father does. He divides the property between him and his older brother. Now, according to Jewish law and tradition, the older son always gets twice what uh, everybody else is going to get. So just between the two boys, the older brother gets twice as much as the younger, the younger son. But he probably liquidates everything, takes off a few days later. And then Jesus describes about how miserable he is after he squanders all of his money. He was so desperate that he even was willing to take care of hogs. Now, you know that... Uh, Pork was one of those products that were forbidden to, to Jews. And to take care of pigs was like, like one of the lowest of the low things you could possibly ever do. You were living cursed if you just took care of pigs. Now, there were actually during Jesus' life in Palestine, there were more, Jew, there were more Gentiles who actually lived there than there were Jews. And there were Greek cities in various places, especially up near the uh, Sea of Galilee. Some had big avenues where the morning sun would shine down the avenue because the people worshipped the sun god and all that kind of stuff. And they loved pork. Oh, yeah. And they'd fire up the grill and they'd have the spare ribs cooking or the pork chops or whatever. They liked pork. But Jews, no. No pork for them. So here he is. He's taking care of the pigs. And if you've ever been on a farm, especially with pigs, you know, you can't possibly be around them without getting pig dookie on you and all that kind of stuff. It's just, you know, it's just nasty business. And know that he doesn't have anything to eat. The pigs are getting everything. And so he finally comes to himself and says, what am I doing here? Yeah, I'm dirty. I'm hungry. I miss home. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to my father. I'm going to just say, Father, forgive me. I've been stupid. Just hire me on as a servant, and I'll work for you. So he goes home, and his father sees him, and rather than chastising him, he welcomes him, tells the servant to bring out the robe and the ring and the calf and everything, 
And there's a big celebration because he's back home. And a lot of times that's where we stop when we're talking about this parable. But then we come to the older brother. He's out in the field working. He comes in. He hears the big celebration. Here's the music. Here's the dancing. And he says, you know, what's going on? Well, your brother who was gone is now back. And your father's having this big celebration in his honor. And he is livid. He will not go into the celebration. The father comes out and says, come on in. He says, no. And his words are pretty, pretty harsh. We look at the passage in uh, verse 29. Look, these many years I have served you. The original, the word serve is a verb form of slave. I've been slaving for you. You never gave me anything. You know, you didn't give me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends or anything like that. And I'm sure the father could have probably recounted different things that he had done for the benefit of his older son. Hey, remember the 4th of July? We had this big barbecue. We invited the little lady down the road with her three daughters. Remember the pretty daughters? They were there. Remember that? You seemed to enjoy yourself then. But the older son doesn't want anything to do with it. He brings accusations against the younger son. He's devoured your property with prostitutes. Now, Jesus didn't say anything about that. So maybe that wasn't really true, but that's what he said. And then technically... It wasn't his father's property because he had divided between his sons. He squandered his own money. That was foolish and a very stupid thing to do, obviously. But he did. And then the father says, you know, all that I have is yours. And this son of yours was dead. He's now alive. He was lost. And he's now found. So it's proper that we celebrate his return. Now, what was the context of this passage? And the context regarding the attitude of the older brother. The accusation, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So who would the older brother represent in the parable? Would he not represent the attitude of those Pharisees, those scribes, those teachers of the law who always were bringing accusations against Jesus about how bad he was? Of course. So Jesus never directly defends himself, except he tells about the character of God and about his own character in the process. Now, in closing, let me just say several things. These parables are addressed to religious people. Not people that we would say were sinners. These people live very righteous lives. 
but they had some things wrong. And they felt that if they were to associate with those bad people, somehow that was going to rub off on them and would taint their relationship to God. I think it was in the I think it was the third Rocky movie. Don't don't hold me to that. Where Rocky's trainer says the worst thing that can happen to a fighter has happened to Rocky. He's become civilized. For a fighter, you don't want to be civilized. You want to be brutal. But Rocky's become civilized, genteel, no longer a fierce fighter. And don't misquote what I'm trying to say, but I think one of the worst things that can happen to Christians is we become nice people. And we don't want to associate with our neighbor down the street who's always getting drunk, has a different girl there every other day, because that's, that's not good. We don't want to associate with that. We don't want to talk to him. But we don't like going to work because people there will tell bad jokes. And it makes me feel unclean and, and I have to associate with them. I knew somebody who actually quit his job because people were not nice people. Oh, we're supposed to be righteous people. We're supposed to be obedient to God. I know that. But we can't let our new relationship to God become something which becomes twisted so that we no longer want to have any association with those that would be declared to be bad. Because those are the very people we're supposed to win to Christ. And isn't it strange that usually some of the most ardent witnesses for Christ are those who have just come to faith and they've learned this, all the things related to salvation. They know what they just came from. They're talking to their friends. They want them to leave their wicked lifestyles, come to faith. But as time goes by, that attitude kind of changes. I think we need to realize it shouldn't change. In this, these parables, and especially the very last one, we see the grace of God. We see the grace of God. Now, there's nothing directly related to the cross in these three parables, but they would all point to the cross. Because how is it that God is able to extend grace to those who are lost? It's because of the payment that Christ was going to make when he died on the cross, and the sin of those who trusted him or would trust in him were laid on him. And if you think about it, since Adam, hasn't God always worked with sinful humans? Or was there a special class of people who were not affected by the fall? No. We're all sinners. So God rejoices over the one sinner who repents over many people who are safely in the fold. In just a few minutes, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Does the Lord's Supper tell us anything about the work of Christ? Yeah, we know the bread represents Christ's broken body. 
And the cup, the wine, represents Christ's blood that was shed for us. And we say, well, what? why was his body broken? Why was his blood shed? Because that was the penalty that he paid as he gave his life for the atonement of our sins. For those of us who are trusting Christ, at least for me, probably for you too, whenever I come to the Lord's Supper, the one thing I'm always reminded of is the fact that I am a sinner. And I always offer a prayer, say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. We, we did that in the service too. But I always do that. And I'm always thankful that God has provided salvation for us in Christ. And for those who are not believers yet, this calls to you and says things can be better for you because you can have a right relationship to God because of what Christ has done. As you think about these parables, think about the context, do check yourself and say, do I have the mindset of Christ reaching out to those who are sinners or do I have the mindset of the Pharisees and the scribes and reject those who are sinners? Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ. And Lord, we know that our attitude is very often not what it should be. We become very comfortable in our uh, faith, and we, we kind of feel somebody else will take care of preaching to the lost and witnessing to them. Help us, Father, to, to not have that attitude, but I have eyes that would see where there is the need for the gospel. And help us to be like you and to seek out those who are lost that we might win them to faith in you. In Christ's name, amen.